Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's time for us to have an art attack. Art Attack. 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 Art Attack is our fortnightly visual arts review segment. I'm joined on the line by Ty Snaith. Ty, hello. Hi, Richard. Sad I can't be in there with you. Yes, it's um, uh, we are. We have regressed back to back to phoners, <laughs> but public good, safety, oh. and we'll see what the uh, uh, acting premier announces today in terms of the easing of restrictions. Yeah, well, I'm going to Tassie tomorrow, so I'm glad that the borders have, have reopened at least because I finally can go away from this state for a little bit. <laughs> I'm glad for you as well. That's fantastic. And also, pretty... I know other people uh, similarly are going up to Queensland, for example, because the again right. borders have reopened. So, uh, as long Victorians as Victorians finally get a holiday, yeah, a long overdue one. So now. <laughs> Before we start, we get into talking about the latest exhibition you've seen here in Melbourne. Given that you're going to Tasmania for a holiday, please tell me you're actually going to have a holiday and not go to endless series of galleries like Sawtooth in Launceston and No. Good, good. No, no galleries, no galleries, just wilderness for me, Richard. That's my that's my real escape. Got got some new hiking boots and yeah, no galleries for me this time. Glad to hear it, because <laughs> I know what it's like working uh, in the arts. Sometimes it is very hard to switch off. And you go, oh, look, I know I'm technically on holiday, but I'll just go and kind of like see three exhibitions and interview that artist and talk to a curator and, no, good, off to the wilderness yeah. you go. But That's right. Before yep. you go to the wilderness, you've been, what, out and about in Melbourne since lockdown Ooh. has relaxed seeing some art? Yeah, actually not in Melbourne. So I went down to the Mornington Peninsula on the weekend um, as, you know, it was the first weekend we were allowed out of 25k. So I thought, my family and I thought we'd make a bit of a, you know, thing of it. And we went down to Point Leo Estate, which is a technically sort of like a winery and restaurant, but it has a huge sculpture park, which, you know, like it, you can see it for, for what it is, which is a collection of really big, uh, mainly modernist sculptures, or also... A uh, really rich dude's kind of collection of giant trinkets. It's kind of also what it is. But in saying that, this is is one of those reviews that is both good and bad. So that's a little bit of a little bit of a warning for anyone who doesn't like bad reviews. I don't often do them, but yeah, I, I really why we wanted to go was because it was a way of seeing arts, but it was really COVID friendly. So you know, the last little while, I know that you can go into galleries now, and it's great, but. For us, we were just really not wanting to go somewhere where we could risk being in an enclosed space and not getting to go on our holiday. So we thought this is probably a good, safe outing. What it is, is you, you go to this um, place. You can actually choose just to go to the sculpture park. You don't have to go and have lunch there. You can say, no, no, just coming through to see the sculptures. But you do have to pay, which my first criticism, I mean, like to walk around someone's big garden with sculptures, you have to pay $10 an adult. Um, so... You, you do pay, and then you also have to check in through a turnstile, which is a little bit weird. Um, but it is owned by the Gandell, so it's like, you know, Chadston supermarket shopping shopping centre land. So, I mean, going through a turnstile 
not that surprising really but it is a little bit weird and jarring to begin with so it's like a it, it's basically in point leo it, it's on a property that's absolutely stunning it goes down to sort of like the ocean those big rolling paddocks you can see cows grazing in the distance around the sculptures it, it's pretty remarkable really in terms of a place it's on uh 19 acres so it's 19 acres of sculpture park uh, which they say on their website is a gentle promenade. So it's not like a, it's not a race, Richard. It's definitely not a sculpture race. <laughs> but there is some like, <laughs> it is quite accessible as well, which is a good thing. It's got a really even path. So if you're in a wheelchair or a mobility type arrangement, it is it is definitely accessible, one tick. Oh yeah, I should say it's, it's $10 an adult or $5 concession. So you still have to pay for your concession. Um, so you go in, you start the promenade on this sort of, track that goes around and then I mean it really the general the bulk of the work in the collection is modernist sculpture so you know you're thinking people like Clement Mead Moore um uh Inga King actually at the entrance of the of the place where you walk through you have to walk through the winery slash um cafe slash restaurant first and as you go into this entrance there is a giant Inga King sculpture which is really quite stunning. It's called the Grand Arch, and it is it is very much a perfect example of a yonic sculpture, Richard, which is the opposite of a phallic sculpture. So it's a big open sort of entrance hole thing. Um, but that is one of the only females in the whole collection. So here, here beginneth my um, criticism. There are 52 works in the collection, big works, I might add, as well. And we're talking like, you know... Hundreds of thousands of dollars. These works, maybe even more. So it's it's not a. I mean, these people have money, and it's a, it's a collection that no normal person really has. But they have fifty two works in their collection, and three of them are women. So I was pretty disappointed on that front, and I did walk through um, reading all the plaques, and you know, I wanted to be really into it. And by the end, I was like, Am I am I dreaming, or did I just not really read any female names, or? So I had to go back and look, and yeah, there were only three women in the collection. So there's Ia King, which is at the entrance, Jane Valentine, which I actually missed when I was there. I only found that on the website, so I assume that must have been inside, like a small sculpture, and Deborah Halpern, who made, you know, the famous kind of push-me-pull-you-down at Birrarungma. One yeah. of her works is there too, big mosaic works. But otherwise, it is all men. And uh, and to be honest, Richard, it's just actually not, it's not cool anymore. Like, And there's actually no reason. When you've got that much money, you can easily address the gender balance and so for me I was super disappointed about that aspect of the work but in saying that there were some really interesting works there's a great Reco Rennie sculpture who is a Camilleroy uh, artist and he comes from a graffiti street art background so it's one of his massive shield kind of works and it is fluoro pink which is like his trademark it's called Miri and both of my boys who we took they both voted that as their favorite work so that's that is actually to his credit because it's hard to get the um approval of uh, an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old and they both unanimously voted that one their favorite uh, there's also an amazing uh Hugo Rondioni sculpture he's uh, he's an interesting artist. He's Swiss American, and this one is like it's called Sunrise East March. It's a fairly cryptic kind of title for what it is. It's like a kind of monster head, and when you get up close to it, it's grinning with these teeth. It's huge, and when you get up close to it, it's all it's like it's been made out of plasticine. You can see all the fingerprints and marks and scrapes. 
So originally, I guess it would have been, been made out of clay and then cast, and it is bronze underneath, but then he spray-painted it with um, silver car paint. So it looks kind of like aluminium. So it looks cheap. When you look at it, you think, oh, is that cast aluminium? But it's actually solid bronze, which I find kind of amusing. So it's a humorous work because in a place where everyone's about how valuable their big trinkets are, this one sort of, it, it takes the piss a bit, if you know what I mean. Like it's grinning at you saying, hey, hey, look, I'm this cheap monster, but actually I'm solid bronze. Yeah. So I like that one for what it is. It's almost like a sculpture joke, really. Now, I'm just um, going to jump in for a moment while you're yeah. dis- talking about uh, and describing some of the works. If people want to get a sense of the scale and the size and the, the look of the works, uh, jump online, www.pointleoestate.com.au. That's P-T, so P-T. Leoestate.com.au uh, and forward slash sculptures, and you can see reproductions of the images. And I'll mention, Ty, that the Jane Valentine work is not a small, discrete work inside, it's oh, a geez. larger work outside called Droplets. Yeah, well, I missed that one, so it mustn't be in a very good spot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or maybe I just was, I wasn't looking at that point. So, I'm, you know, it is hard to take everything in. But uh, yeah, that, it is a beautiful work, marble droplets, like giant marble droplets. Um, then what else was on my list of what I did like, and actually my whole family loved this work, it's a fairly unassuming sculpture when you're sort of looking at all these giant, big, um, quite gaudy, like, ex- exhibition of, um, you know, male testosterone, look how good I can weld and cast, which for me sometimes public sculpture is a little bit like that. It's like, hey, look how big I can make something. Well, this work is not like that at all. It's by an artist called Richard Tipping, and it's a sign. And as you're walking along the path, there's just this little sign, red sign, and it's interestingly placed, which I think is why I liked it. It's quite site specific in that they've put it near what looks like an entrance into sort of a worker's area. So it's like a... You do think, oh, we're not really meant to go down there, but then you see the sign and it says... Private poetry, which immediately you read as property because it's it's like a no go no go sign, but it says private poetry, trespassers welcome, which I loved, and the boys our boys loved that as well. And it's um, Richard Tipping has been sort of called a word sculptor or a visual poet, so that one probably appeals to you too, Richard. I imagine. Yes, and I've seen Tipping's work before uh, in a couple of different locations in different cities around the country. There's something. Yeah, as you say, very very playful that um, yeah. subverts our expectations of public signage and property. And, exactly. Yeah, and I love how when it's you know when he's in this kind of competitive field of big male sculptors, it's it's quiet, it's quiet, and it's just a sign, but it packs a punch because it's funny, and I think it really could teach us all a little bit about how art, public art, in that competitive realm, you know, it could do with a little bit of humour, a little bit of. You know, gentleness, even just a little bit of, you know, inverting what what sculpture is. Like, I really do think that this this collection could do with a little bit more sort of contemporary work. Like, if it was me curating this exhibition, first of all, I would bump up the the, um, numbers of women in the show. I would bump up the numbers of Indigenous artists and people of colour. There's, like, zero, well, one, Rekha Rennie. I would also maybe have a look at how you could engage the site, like... It's such this. It's such an amazing sight and view, and and really hardly any of the works actually interact with the site in a contemporary way. Like they're all in that sort of really modernist tradition of plonking a big thing, almost like architecture or like follies, architectural follies. That's that's how it's it spoke to me. 
Um, I guess there is one... Sorry, I was just going to say, I guess that's a reflection of the fact that this is a a private collection uh, as opposed to something more carefully curated. Presumably it's uh, the the, the whim of the individual owners going, I like that work, just plonk it down there. Uh, But certainly, as you say... Yeah, totally. I was just going to say that... um, that lack of engagement with the site is intriguing, given some of the other sculpture parks and gardens around that have a yep. seem to have a a greater awareness of of place of locality and of the interaction between the work and the environment. That's right. So you know we're referring to places like McClelland, which has a long history of, of inter, in inter um, interacting with the bush around it. Also, uh, Montalto even have this beautiful walk that really takes you on a journey, whereas this, I do feel like it is... I mean, but we're talking about collectors that are... Like, they plonk big shopping centres in the middle of nowhere, so it's not that surprising. Um, but if if now going ahead, if, if anyone is listening that knows the Gandels, perhaps they could, you know, gently um, encourage them to maybe... Like, if they're charging $10 a head, we really want to come and see a curated collection and now that it is about putting works in a site perhaps they could commission an artist to work with the site um one of in saying that though one of my favorite works in the collection is by uh now i've lost my place it is a galloping horse like a screen of a gallop you've got it in front of you don't you richard it is a galloping horse scrolling through (laughs) madly trying to find the work you're referring to and i've totally blanked on his name, which is a great thing because I didn't write this one down. But um, the same artist has made works, and it's just, you know, when the name falls off the, out of your head. They've made works for uh, um, the Triennial. So outside you might have seen his works along the centre of the nature strip. Um, <laughs> I know this artist's name really well as well, and I'm so embarrassed. Um, oh, well, it happens. It happens to the best of us. But it's an animated galloping horse uh, up on a sort of big screen, really, um, on a plinth of bricks. And as you sort of enter, as you drive up the driveway, you see this galloping horse from as you're driving in, and it does really take your eye. And it's like, it's black and white. It is really referring to the Mybridge, you know, the early, early animation, one of the first um, moving images, really, of the horse in all its gates, so going through the movement of gates. But in this case, it has been made into sort of a almost pictogram of a horse galloping. And in, it is sort of site-specific in a way because as you enter the place, it does look like there's a horse galloping through the vineyards a little bit, a black and white horse. So that was another work, even though I've forgotten the artist's name just because it's fallen out of my head and I know the artist really well. Um, if you have a look at the website, you'll be able to see it. But that one was slightly site-specific, but otherwise, yeah, that, that's my criticism. It would be nice to sort of see something that you could interact with, even if it's augmented reality, a sculpture in the sense of, you know, something in the expanded realm of sculpture like Richard Tipping managed to do with just a sign where you can bring humour in, you can bring site-specificity. I can never say that word either. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know what I'm saying, Richard. I feel like it could, if you're charging people $10, maybe you could do a little bit for that. But, yeah, otherwise, it, it was lunch was really nice. You know, if you're after a nice lunch to gaze out over a paddock full of big, heavy, male-made sculptures, then go for it. But, yeah, it was a little bit lacking for me. But, you know, not every review can be good, can it? No, no. Uh, And 
as you say, uh, it's an opportunity to also get out of town, uh, travel somewhere to an open space and see some work. So may not entirely have been yeah, to your cup of fine. tea, but um, perhaps others will enjoy. So that's the Sculpture Park at Point Leo Estate. Uh, jump online, www.pointleoestate.com.au. That's Point PT, the abbreviation. And the website notes that you can uh, do... A short walk, 30 minutes, a long walk, 60 minutes, or you can combine the two so that you can see all of the works. And there's a map that shows you where the works by oh. the individual artists are on the website as well. You can do a short work. Yeah, there is a map that shows you all of it, which is quite good. But you just sort of wander around, which is, you know, you don't need to, you know, you don't need to actually, like, see things in order, which is quite nice. You can just wander, find them, you know, go at your own space, time. Cool. Take your family. It's the Sculpture Park at Point Leo. Ty, thanks very much for joining us on the show <laughs> and thanks for a, a critique pleasure. of the work. My pleasure. And I'll see you after my holiday. We'll catch you in a fortnight's time and have a wonderful time down in Tasmania. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Alyssa Armstrong is the co-artistic director of independent theatre company Heartstring Theatre, who are staging a new work at 45 Downstairs. It's a play called Still, written by Jen Silverman. Like many theatre companies, it was they were going to be staging this work last year, but then, Alyssa, this little small pandemic happened. Exactly. Um, yeah, it kind of threw a spanner in the works for us, and we also started our rehearsal process recently during the two-week lockdown. So it's been um, some trying times for us, but we're hoping to get the show on next week and hopefully it's smooth sailing from there. Well, I am touching all the wood I can see in front of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the play itself, this is written by Jen Silverman, who uh, people may know, they, perhaps they caught her work The Moors at Red Stitch, for example. Tell us a little bit about Silverman as a playwright and what it is about her work, and in particular this play, Still, which made you and the rest of the company want to stage it. Well, I think the thing about Jen is she's incredibly new and fresh and interesting and she talks about her influences being Carol Churchill, Sarah Kane, people like that which you know they're my they're my influences as well. I think they're incredible playwrights. And every play that she's written is quite different. So I saw the Moors at Red Stitch and I absolutely loved it. And I had read still maybe a year before that and thought it's so strange that it's the same playwright because it's not like Noel Coward where every character in every play sounds the same. This is quite different to The Moors. It's quite different to her other work. We really wanted to put it on because it does deal with uh, women's health issues, specifically stillbirth, and I haven't ever seen that depicted on stage before, I think, ever. The act itself is not depicted on stage, but the aftermath of that and how it affects everyone involved has never been shown before and it felt so interesting and feminist and that's really what our theatre company is about, that it seemed like a perfect fit. Given that we're going to be discussing uh, the topic of stillbirth and how it's explored in the play, some listeners may Mm -hmm. find this an uncomfortable conversation, so uh, perhaps maybe go and make a cup of coffee, switch off the radio, come back in five or ten minutes. But uh, I think we should also stress that um, despite the... The, the tragedy of stillbirth and the way and the impact it has on people, which, as you say, is kind of so rarely depicted theatrically, dramatically. Mm. And I wonder um, 
whether you think that's partially because the issue of mortality generally is something that so many people in our in our society are uncomfortable with, but whether there's a, a specific kind of uh, perhaps sexist bias that uh, too many men, perhaps particularly male playwrights, might just throw up their hands and go, Ugh, "Icky women's business." I don't want to think about that. <laughs> well, I, I think I think you're correct. I think it does take a female writer to. So Jen had actually based this on a friend of hers who had the experience of having a stillborn child. Uh, but I know that with Heartstring, we really wanted a female director to direct it, and we got a great director in Sarah Vickery. But I also think it's quite interesting because we know a lot about other issues with children in terms of SIDS, and that gets a lot of attention. But there are far more stillborn children born than there are children that die of SIDS. So it's interesting that stillbirth still hasn't gotten very much attention and it is still such a taboo subject. And maybe it's that a lot of women feel that they have failed in some way, which is absolutely not the case. It just happens. There's no there's no failure. But I think there is some sort of taboo around it. People don't want to talk about it. People don't want to bring it up. Uh, it's, it seems like it's the last the last taboo, really. In terms of the production itself, uh, we should also mention that uh, this is uh, there is a, a fair degree, there's some comedy involved here as well. This is not mm-hmm. going to be mm-hmm. uh, a kind of grim, unrelenting ninety minutes at the theatre. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's quite an absurd play. There's a lot of comedy. It is. It's still very sensitive. The comedy is not about the act of stillbirth at all. But the way it's presented, there are moments of levity, which then allows the the sadder moments to, I think, have more effect and more weight. It's not 90 minutes of unrelenting grimness at all. I would never put that show on. <laughs> now, in terms of the, the play itself, uh, talk to us about the, the structure and the way it's written. We have three female characters who mm-hmm. uh, become more intimately connected as the play unfolds. We also have a male character who... uh, Mm -hmm. A a very interesting role from what I've read about the play. It is. It's... it's, I don't know how much I want to give away, but it is a a baby played by um, Joseph Lye, who is an incredible actor, and he's an adult. And the way it's structured... I mean, the scenes are almost like vignettes, and they're almost little plays in themselves the way Jen has structured it, we keep saying in the rehearsal process, oh, a lesser playwright would have done this, and she's always taking left turns and not giving you what you expect, yet it's still quite satisfying. But it it keeps surprising us. We've been rehearsing for a while now, and we're still surprised. And in terms of the impact of that surprise, how does that then shape the emotional tone of the work uh, from your perspective, uh, given that um, you're uh, acting in the work as well, I believe? Yeah, I am. Uh, it's We've had interesting moments because there have been moments that have really affected all of the actors that we would not have predicted. And certainly no one is on stage crying for 90 minutes. Um, but her, Jen's language is quite poetic. It's not naturalistic. And it's so interesting as an actor, when actors are speaking in metaphor, how actually effective that can be. And it can really hit you and it, it presents something that you may have heard before in a new way. And it, it can just, it goes straight to your emotions. It just bypasses your head, goes straight to your heart. And I think we've all been having these moments of revelation in the rehearsal process of, oh, I, I, I just heard that for the first time, or I never thought about it that way. And that's amazing as well. 
Now, in terms of the the way the play deals with the the, the subject of stillbirth, is it tackling this uh, head on? Is it being a little bit more abstract, a little bit more playful in terms of the way it uh, works with this subject to weave it into the the drama and the comedy of the play? It definitely doesn't ignore it. One of the characters is a woman who has just had a stillborn child and it deals with grief certainly quite explicitly. But I would say, like like I said before, it isn't an unrelenting 90 minutes of of someone crying. It, It kind of, I would say, changes and the way that it affects each character is quite different. The three women in the play are connected in very different ways and end up in a way, sort of becoming quite like one another. I always think of the Ingmar Bergman film Persona, where the two women start to sort of merge in quite a creepy way. This play is not creepy. But there's a there's an influence that they all have on one another without realising it. And it, it is funny, but it is also sad at times. And hopefully both those elements will come out when people watch it. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, the the... Last year's production postponed because of COVID and then rehearsals mm-hmm. for, for still when you're mm. thinking we're finally getting it up and it's going to go ahead, then rehearsals yep. having to be done via Zoom. <laughs> Tell us about how that impacts on the, the, the I guess, f- finding those kind of emotional connections between, between actors, the, those moments that make the oh. play work. Trying to create them on Zoom must be almost impossible. Oh, it is, it's impossible. I mean... First of all, you're looking at your compu- your camera on your laptop, so you're not even looking at the person's eyes because you're trying to make some sort of connection. And you're, you, you almost have to work a bit harder when you're in front of a screen because you want to give so much and you want to get it through the screen and it's not really happening. So we did a lot of text work, um, which was, has actually been completely beneficial and really fed into the work that we've done in the room together. But it was really, really difficult. You cannot rehearse a play simply on Zoom or Google Hangouts. It's it's just, it's exhausting, but in all the wrong ways. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Alyssa Armstrong, who's the co-artistic director of Heartstring Theatre and is also acting in Heartstring Theatre's production of Still at 45 Downstairs. The season is running from the 30th of June until the 11th of July at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane. Alyssa, if people aren't familiar with Heartstring Theatre, tell us a little bit about the company and your ethos. I I understand it was established uh, in part because of the dearth of great roles for female actors. Exactly, exactly. So our mission has always been to have at least half the roles on stage be played by female-identifying or non-binary actors. So, unfortunately, it's about having less men on stage. Uh, Unfortunately for the men, but fortunately for the women, I just found... I, I do, I've done a lot of classical theatre and there's always one great role for women and about 11 great roles for men. And so it was about rectifying that. We have had plays with men in them, like still, but primarily it's about telling women's stories, uh, female-driven stories, and hopefully also uh, using creatives who are female-identifying or non-binary. Now, in the past, for example, you've done a, an all-female production of Shakespeare's Coriolanus, uh, and I wondered how mm-hmm. having all of those roles kind of uh, played by women, a play directed by a woman, mm. how does that change the, the theatrical dynamic and the experience? What does it bring to the play that uh, a, produc- a more traditional uh, pl- production of that play would not have? It's so 
so interesting because a lot of people said to me, because Coriolanus is very much about war and it's coming back from war, a lot of people could get on board with women going to war, but they couldn't get on board with a character who was so bloodthirsty and wanted revenge and sought revenge for the entire play, which I found quite interesting because we were women on stage doing that, but there was almost a little bit of a gap of, well, we've seen men do this, we haven't seen women do this, but that just fires me up more and says, well, the more you see women or non-binary people doing this, the more on board you're going to be. So I just want to keep producing, essentially. And is there any ever challenge between, I, I guess, balancing producing a work uh, as part of as the, the co-artistic director of a company and acting in it? How do you mm. kind of separate those roles? And do you sometimes have to try and step outside of yourself <laughs> to focus on the, the actual craft of acting rather than thinking about the production <laughs> and, the, and the presentation of the work? It's so difficult. And if anyone knows how to separate the two, I would love some advice. I think it's been very helpful because even... With the delay with COVID, it meant we had a very long lead-in period to this season. So a lot of the producing could get done ahead of time, which has been great. But it can be difficult. And sometimes I forget that I'm the producer, so I have to look at the reviews. I have to find pull quotes from the reviews for our publicity. But I'm also the actor who has to read these reviews and might read really horrible things about myself. But as a producer, I have to just accept that so it's actually I think been quite healthy for me as an actor to go it's not all about the acting it's not all about you it is a collaboration and it is about the the production itself is the most important thing and look as a final question for you Alyssa before I let you go uh you've mentioned uh uh, the playwright Jen Silverman a bit in this conversation. Uh, have you been mm-hmm. in touch with her about the work? Have you uh, asked for any changes to the script, for example? Is, does the collaboration that you've had with the other actors on Zoom, for example, extend to conversations with Silverman? <laughs> it, it has. So Jen has been very open with our director about changing a, a few terms and things like that because we are setting it in Australia. So college for example becomes uni and she's been very open about that which is so lovely because I know that some playwrights estates are very strict you cannot change a word but Jen has said I mean I don't want to put words in her mouth but she has said do what you want very open about it which is so refreshing and so lovely and makes me think even more highly of her that she wants the work to go on and wants it accessible to as wide an audience as possible. Jen Silverman's Still presented by Heartstring Theatre is on from the 30th of June until the 11th of July at 45 downstairs. You can find out more about the company at www.weareheartstring.com and you can also go to www.45downstairs.com for bookings online or you can call 9662-9966 to book to see Heartstring Theatres still at 45 downstairs running from the 30th of June until the 11th of July. Alyssa Armstrong, thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Oscar Wilde once famously said, one should either be a work of art 
or wear a work of art, an aphorism that I think my next guests have taken to heart because they are both. Uh, I'm joined on the line by Will and Garrett Huxley, who together as the Huxleys have performed at numerous Australian festivals, most notably Dark Mofo, amongst others. Uh, you may well have seen their kind of sequined, sparkling costume slash character slash performance art events around town or interstate. Will and Garrett, thanks for joining me on the program. Thanks for having us. Morning, Richard. Now, Will, I'll start with you. You've got a, uh, an exhibition coming up at the Centre for Contemporary Photography, Places of Worship. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so it's a project that we've been working on for a couple of years now. And, you know, Garrett and I started as visual artists, and that's kind of always been what we what we did. But we kind of got swept up into the performance art world and, and have been performing a lot of know us for that but this show is kind of a, a return to our visual art so it's a photographic predominantly photographic series uh, but it also features uh, a video artwork and costumes and it's kind of like a we're describing it as like a lurid melting pot of all the crazy things that we dream up but it, it, it is a return to photography and the images are a celebration of the beauty that we see in the natural world often our costumes and images are inspired by weird animals or creatures or, or things in nature that we find like exotic and extreme. We often find that the things in nature that are seen as rare and exquisite are celebrated, but uh, being a flamboyant, <laughs> over-the-top boy growing up, those things aren't as celebrated in people. So we kind of put that into, into our work and we've made works that speak to the beauty that we find in nature. And uh, Yeah, we created the costumes and travelled around Australia to to take photographs and it's been quite an undertaking being out in the middle of nowhere in ridiculous costumes and <laughs> but yeah we've loved doing it. And Garrett, how does it feel to be then returning to a, a, a photographic practice, something that hasn't necessarily fallen by the wayside per se, but uh, has certainly perhaps been eclipsed by the performance art side of your practice? It feels great because um, I'm a little bit more introverted and um, I've always enjoyed working that way. And doing performance was a real challenge for me. Um, it was kind of, um, it wasn't a natural step to kind of, um, you know, go on stage so it's been really nice just to kind of put all those ideas and um, work on them over time. And, um, yeah, I enjoy working like that. How did the photographic practice originate? Was it an, a chance to just create the kind of images you wanted to see in the world? What was the, the rationale for it? Uh, you know, I studied photography at university and film and was always drawn to... to I just have a really visual mind, I think, and, and have always loved the idea of escapism so growing up just dreaming of other worlds seeing images of people like david bowie or grace jones people that and those those lurid kind of i was loved the 70s and i wanted to i wished i was born then and those really hyper colored imagery so i just wanted to create that and make a world for myself and the photography was the language that i used um so yeah it was it's about creating that fantasy, really, for me. Yeah, I studied photography up in Queensland. Um, I did a photography um, BA, and it was about, like, growing up in the 80s in Queensland, and photos were really important of, um, you know, from Face or ID magazine. They just meant so much because there was nothing around you at that time which really, you know, kind of let you feel like you think there were other things like you. So, other than these images. So I think it's about creating those other worlds and escaping. 
Certainly the, the potency of those images. I remember vividly as a queer kid growing up in country Victoria in the 70s and 80s, the, the first time I saw photos of somebody like Boy George, for example. I didn't necessarily think I was the only queer kid in town, but I certainly wasn't seeing myself represented in any form of, of popular culture or mainstream media. So to have that kind of revelatory uh, uh, kind of image presented was significant for me. In turn, uh, and maybe Will, I'll get you to answer this first and then throw to Garrett, but given the images you both create and given the, the, the impact of those images, both in uh, visual uh, static imagery but also then in performance, what positive impact do you think you're having on a new generation of queer kids who will be seeing themselves reflected and represented in your art? Well, it, that's one thing that really touches me and, and uh, I, I find... Uh, you know, we work a lot within the Melbourne queer performance community and I'm so excited by the younger generation because they are fearless and a lot of them, uh, you know, were out in high school and, you know, growing up in WA when in the 80s and 90s, that was something that being queer was talked about in school. And we work with young performers now who are out and they are you know, unapologetic and, and fierce. And, and I, I like, they actually inspire us to push what we do even further. And I, I love that idea. And, and I, if some, if a young queer kid sees that one of these images or images of us performing in the most flamboyant, queer, extreme way possible, and it lets them feel less alone, I would have loved to have seen that as a young person. So that's one of our main things in our work is celebrating those things that we were told to hide or not not show growing up um, and that's what this work is about as well it's about being you know, celebrating the differences as being a queer strange kid yeah I think one of I, I can relate to the um, your comment about boy George I couldn't believe it just watching that being about eight or nine like boy George Carolyn and Pete Burns on TV was just it was quite incredible and comforting just to know that there was something out there other than what was presented to you or what was around you in that world. And another thing for me is um, was Lee Barry at the time, who I used to do face and ID magazine. And it, for me, it was interesting because it even took it further. It was like beyond gender and, um, and there was no sexuality almost in most of his imagery. Um, and sex, you know, fashion is all about sex. So it's really interesting when you're not trying to attract anyone. Fashion. One of the things that we love to do in our work is to try and take away the idea of gender. Uh, you know, it, it allows so much freedom in exploring different states of the body. And, do, like, often when we're performing, like, the most basic people are always like, oh, are you a dude or are you a girl? Like, they're really confronted by that concept. And we're always like, why does that matter? It's give us this sense of freedom to explore and, and, make, and make things that are not real and... It, it's a magical thing. It doesn't have to be gendered, and I think that that is a really great thing. Well, one of the images that's in the exhibition, I believe, uh, looking at the, uh, the website ccp.org.au, uh, again, yes, there's that uh, androgynous uh, element and an alien element. These kind of... Uh, it looks like... Uh, Garrett, you talked about travelling around the country to take these photos. This looks like it was taken at the um, radio telescope station outside of Canberra. Oh, that one? That's down in Hobart. Oh, when okay. we were down there for Dark Mofo the last time, yeah. And um, it was such a beautiful experience. The the people that ran it actually moved 
it for us. And if you've ever seen one of these things move, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's so huge. But um, that was us wanting to travel to space and maybe find some different answers. One of the things that inspired the work as well is just an anxiety about the the natural world and the sadness about, you know, things like climate change or, or, you know, the destruction of native natural places. And that, you know, that, that photo was called Distress Signal, and it was almost like we need to get off the Earth because we're destroying it in some way. Uh, you know, we just wanted to make us a real tribute to these beautiful places. Some of the photos are about, you know, there's a photo in the Salt Lakes, and it's super dry, and we're wearing the hottest pink costumes you can imagine. Just about the, the way that the, the Earth is, is rare and precious, and we, we wanted to celebrate that. How challenging is it to shoot and stage some of these photographs, given the, the, the necessity of lugging around costumes, changing on site, setting up the shots in whether underwater or whether surrounded by snow, or uh, as you've just mentioned, Will, in a, in a, a salt pan out in the middle of the of kind of the, the wilds of Australia? Well, we suffer for our art. It's always really uncomfortable in these costumes. And uh, so, some of these shoots have been, some of them have been a disaster. We love failures. We, we really celebrate failure in our work. But we tried to shoot the, a photo in the snow three or four times. And each time, you know, the, cam- the lens would fog up or the ice would form, the camera got blown over, lights would fly. And then you're trying to, like, like make your way out into the snow, freezing in a ridiculous puff costume. It, it has been a real challenge, and there's a lot of running back and forth to see whether we got this shot. We work alone, um, so it's, it, is, it is very challenging, especially when you can't really see a lot of our costumes. The visibility is minimal. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was one of the, I think it's the biggest challenge we've done with our photographic work, working on location. Uh, yeah, it, it, <laughs> I, some of them I just can't believe that we actually managed to get something. Well, I'm certainly glad you have. The Huxley's Places of Worship is showing at the Centre for Contemporary Photography at 404 George Street, Fitzroy, from the 7th of July. Now, we've got photographic uh, practice. We've mentioned your performance practice. There's video. There's a song, I believe. You've created a song for the exhibition as well. Is that right, Garrett? Yeah, we've um, created a disco song, and we did that. Um, just have some fun at the exhibition. It's, it's called... Um, style over substance and uh, that was it's kind of inspired by actually you started with an Oscar Wilde quote there is, it was inspired by the Oscar Wilde quote where he, where he said in matters of sincerity style is over substance is the most important thing <laughs> so yeah and it's a, a disco utopia it's like our, our sound we thought would be the disco and that's something that's always saved us and returned to us in our life that we just love the freedom, and we worked with um, Angus Leslie from Sex on Toast and Jules Pasco from Jazz Party to write our first song, and it's been like a dream come true. <laughs> the video we made for it, we shot on location while we're photographing the um, the photographs, um, the work there, so it all ties in as well. Yeah, the locations are featured throughout the video that are in the imagery as well, so it all ties in together. And will there be a performance from you as the Huxleys uh, during the, the duration of the exhibition at CCP or does the work speak for itself? No, we, we like to saturate everything. <laughs> we like to throw everything at what we do. So we are, we're going to perform our debut. We're calling it our new hit single. 
Um, we're going to perform that at the opening. And they'll also be, uh, throughout the show, they'll be, we'll be sort of there in costumes, roving around at different sort of like pop-up moments. And we're also doing an artist talk on, on the weekend. Uh, so, yeah, we will be there and we'll be uh, dressed up. And, yeah, uh, we're very excited about performing this song. It's uh, I've, Growing up, we always wanted to be glam rock stars. or So this is kind of our, yeah, our chance to, to do that. The Huxley's Places of Worship, as I said, on at the Centre for Contemporary Photography uh, in Fitzroy, located at uh, 404 George Street, Fitzroy. Uh, I believe, what, opening on the evening of the 7th and then the exhibition itself running from the 8th through to the 11th of July. Yes. You can find out more info at ccp.org.au. Will and Garrett Huxley, thank you so much for joining us and I hope the exhibition and everything associated with it is a huge success. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 